The title of the message today is Becoming Who You Are, or before that, Leaving Who You Were and Becoming Who You Are. So that's what we're looking at today. Uh, Because of the gospel, we are new creations in Christ, and Paul describes both our new character and the means by which this is produced in us today. Colossians 3 has been a huge turning point in which we went away from things that were not going to produce Christ-likeness in us, legalism, asceticism, mysticism, and he's turned the corner now and he's showing us exactly what we need to become like Christ. Last week we talked about God commanding us to put to death the old man. And that would include the sexual sins, immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Uh, These are perversions of what God has given us in marriage. Satan has perverted those things, and we're called not to live in those anymore, but to come out. And Paul's directing it to his audience. The Colossians dealt with these sins. These were things they struggled with, and they had come to Christ and been made new creations And now they need to put all this stuff off. And Paul tells us in this letter that they were this way, but now there's something different. Then we looked at putting off the sins of anger, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, obscene talk from your lips. And here we see uh, just the, the, the hatred that is in mankind that came as a result of the fall. And we understand that Satan is a murderer from the beginning. And then we didn't talk about it much, but verse 9, we talked about the fact, did not talk about the fact that you don't need to lie to one another anymore. Because you have a new nature, these are the things you shouldn't be doing anymore. You are somebody else. And it's time to put these things off. The Bible calls Satan the father of lies. Satan's lie to Adam and Eve threw the whole world into the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Has God not said, lying to Adam and Eve? In John 8, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he tells them who their father is. Uh, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So we see that what Jesus is attacking here, what Paul is addressing in 5 through 9 are The character qualities we have naturally put on as a result of the fall. We have taken on the character qualities of Satan. And Jesus says, you are no longer that person. And it's time for you to put those things away. Because of the fall, we were made in the image of God, but that image has been defaced. It's still there but it's been damaged because of the fall. And Christ's goal in salvation is not just to forgive us of our sins, it is to begin to renew that image of God in us. 
that we could reflect to the world the very image of Christ. We're told in Ephesians 2, 2, and 3 that we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. This is who we once were. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest. But, praise God, he saved us. He made an incredible difference in us. We're going to try to unpack that today. This passage uses language of putting off and putting on, putting off and putting on. And you know, um, all of us young men here, I used to be a young man, before we got married, we pretty much had control over what we put off and what we put on. And we were some styling dudes before we met our wives. I had my leisure suit. I had my terry cloth shirts. And she told me she loved me. And so we got married. And um, so I came home one day and I was looking in my closet for my favorite shirts. And they weren't, they weren't there. They, they were gone. And she had some story about how she didn't know where they were. <laughs> and I'm sure she didn't. <laughs> Because whoever she gave them to, they didn't tell her where they were going to take them. And we've all experienced uh, the phenomenon of thinking you're ready to go somewhere, only to walk in your wife's seat and go, oh no, Mm-mm. you're not going to go out in that right there. The language here is very clear. The language is God is saying, you're not going to go out like that anymore. You're not going to continue to wear Satan's clothes. I have saved you by the blood of Christ. And it's time for you to go back in, take those off, and put on the robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ. So these are commands. These are not suggestions. These are commands from God that we put off these things. And now we're going to talk today about putting on the very, the very car- these incredible qualities that we'll talk about more as we go down the line. We're going to look today at the mission to begin with. Does anybody have an extra outline that I could borrow? I need it. Thank you. Because I don't want to dig through it in my notes. And when you get this old, you can't remember what the outline was. <clears throat> so we're going to look today at the mission the motivation, the marks, and the means for us to become who we are. That's what we're going to look at today. If you look in verse 9 and 10, we read the last part of 9, he says, and put off the old self with its practices and have, you says, you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What is the mission? The mission is for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is the reason we were saved. Forgiveness of sins is part of it. 
But it's a bigger picture. He wants us to become into the image of Christ, to take the image of God that's been damaged and bring it back into clear focus. This passage shifts from the negative put to death to the positive put on. With the stripping off of the old nature, there was to come a new nature, the new man. We have laid aside the garment and the hand-me-down rags from Adam, if you will, and we have put on the new garment, the new man in Christ. One pastor called it taking off Adam's jersey and putting on Christ's jersey. And we know how that is when you change teams, don't you? Everything changes, and now you learn a, learn a different co- a playbook, and you perform in a different way because you're under different leadership. The put off and the put on are both aorist tense in the Greek, which means this is a completed past event. When you died with Christ, were buried and were raised again, your old man died. It was put off. And when you were raised to walk in newness of life, the new man was put on. This is why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, we are a new creation in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. So this is a fact. This is a fact in God's mind that we're no longer who we used to be. Now we still got, we got a closet full of clothes that need to be gotten rid of, but something dramatic has happened to us in our encounter with Jesus and we're not who we used to be anymore. At that moment, the old self has been rendered powerless and the new self is now to be in control. In Christ, the believer has been set free from the dominion and power of sin because of our permanent identification and union with Christ, which we found in what verses? One through four, right? That's our identification and union with Christ. We now have the power of his spirit and the responsibility to conduct ourselves as a new man in Christ. We are not told to feel that these things are true or even to fully understand them. But we are told to live them out by grace through faith. Now, did you hear that? It's not a matter of whether you feel like you're a new man. It doesn't even matter if you completely understand what all has happened to you. Newsflash, no one completely understands what's happened to us except for God and all that it means. That's a, a pool you deep dive deep into for the rest of your life to understand what's happened to you in this new relationship with Christ. So as you're fighting the battle with sin and as you're being defeated from time to time, you can quickly say, well, I'm not really a new creation in Christ. The Bible says, yes, you are. Something has started there and there will be victory. Remember our analogy of Iwo Jima. I'm sure there were soldiers who were fighting that day as men were dropping left and right around them who didn't believe that victory was at hand or was even possible. And yet, from the moment that beachhead was established, it wasn't a matter of if that island was going to come under the control of the United States. It was just a matter of what? When? This is what's happened to us in Christ. 
He will carry on the work in us until we are completely like Jesus. And in Colossians 3, he's inviting us to participate with the help of the Holy Spirit in removing the old and bringing on the new. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 show us the picture of both things happening here. Remember Philippians 2, 12 and 13? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a command to us. For it is God who works in you and, and to work for his good pleasure. Sanctification is the work of Christ in which he commands us to put off the old man and to put on the new man. Live out what I've already done. You're a child of the king. It's now time to get off those rags of Adam and put on the robe of Christ. And it is a continuous action. This is something we'll be doing for the rest of our lives. This is clearly God's will in Romans 8, 29. As he talks about God's plan from the very beginning, he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Before the foundation of the world, God chose a people. And his plan from the get-go was to take that people and make them into the very image of of Jesus. So that's always been his plan. What is discipleship? It's helping people come to know Jesus and help them walk down the road to become more and more and more like him. Make disciples of all nations. That's what that's all about. Tell them the great news that God has died for them that they might know him and trust him as their Lord and Savior. And that he will continue a work in them until they look like Christ. That's wonderful news for us. Everybody should have a smile on their face right now. As you think about what God has done for us. So first we have the mission. The mission is to become into the very image of Christ. Secondly, the motivation. What's going to drive that? What's going to cause us to really go out and run and pursue that? Motivation is really very important, isn't it? If we go out in our yard or we go out in the front and we go for a run, there's only a so much motivation there, there is there, right? And if it's 101 out in the middle of a Texas summer, there's even less motivation, right? But you take the same distance we run out in the yard or out in the front or as we go around the neighborhood and you put us on a track and we're competing for a prize, all of a sudden the motivation goes where? Way, way up. Notice what he says. Here's our motivation. Verse 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And he lists these things, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Now a lot of us, would run right over those little descriptive words and go right to the compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Don't miss those three words. 
there. They are huge. He says we are God's what? Chosen ones. He says we are holy. He says we are beloved. As we go to the 1828 Webster Dictionary, chosen means selected from a number, picked out, taken in preference, elected, predestinated. You are someone who's been chosen by God. It's a powerful thing when somebody chooses you. That's what makes love love, right? When a guy comes for a girl and he chooses her over all the other girls in the world. And when she chooses him over all the guys in the world. That is a powerful statement. The Bible says we are chosen by God. You just didn't happen to stumble into the Christian banquet and fill out a form and became a Christian. You were chosen by him. Secondly, you are holy, which means set apart for a purpose. We have the Navy SEALs. We have these special, special ops forces. They are select, chosen people that are set aside for a very specific purpose. And they're equipped and trained for what they're supposed to do. And I love this word, we're beloved. It means loved, greatly loved, dear to the heart. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you are chosen by God, you are set apart by God, and you are, you are close to his heart. Sometimes we don't feel that way, do we? Life is tough. There's things that happen to us. It's challenging. The message here is, this is our God. And he has been deliberate in getting you, in laying hold of you. Some thoughts on election. Election is a confusing topic. If we think... This one author says, if we think we can suspend judgment on all that is controversial and feed our souls only on what is left, we are living in a dream world. Think about all the controversial doctrines we'd have to let go of so we could live in a world where there was no controversy. We would have to get, get rid of creation. Couldn't believe in that. We can't believe in the Bible. We can't believe in the gospel. We can't believe in the Trinity. We can't believe in the nature of Christ. We can't believe in hell. We can't believe in salvation in Christ alone. This is a controversial doctrine, but it is in the scriptures. And what I want to say about it is it is a great help for us in this very topic of putting on the new man. It is very helpful. It's a great resource for us. John Piper says, the teaching of scripture on election has been controversial, but I believe with all my heart that it is precious beyond words and a great nourishment for the Christ-likeness of faith. If I understand the teaching of the Bible, God has pleasure in election. To know that this is true 
and to know why it is, it is to see another facet of the glory of God. When you see election, you understand another facet of who God is. And that sight of who he is, is the power to make us holy and happy people. There is something powerful when we understand that we have been chosen by God. And if we think about that and meditate on that, that's going to give us the motivation to put to death the old man and to put on the new man. John Hendricks, who, if anybody's ever been to the Monergism website, he is the, the founder of that website, wrote this. God's love is unconditional for those he intends to adopt as his children. He does not make us meet a condition, faith, before he will love us. A lot of us, some of us believe that we, we believe and then we're loved. Election says you were loved and given the grace to believe. That's a huge difference in how you see your salvation. Rather, he meets the condition for us in Christ by doing for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. That is, giving us everything we need for salvation, including a new heart to believe. This is what happens in salvation. The Spirit of God gives us a new heart and the grace to repent and believe. This is why if we understand election, we brought nothing to the table. Not even our faith. We do have faith, but it's energized by the power of the Spirit within us to put our focus on Christ. Augustine said, he chooses us not because we believe, but that we may believe, lest we should say that we first chose him. And then MacArthur has a, a comment on an interview that he had. He says, it's pro it probably ought to be the first thing you teach a young believer. Now that you've come to Christ, this is what I want you to know. You were saved by the sovereign grace of God who stepped into your life in the midst of your death and blindness and gave you life and sight and picked you up and brought you into his kingdom. Sheer grace has done this for you. And because of that, you need to know this is really important, that you should live a life of gratitude for a work that's been done in you which you did not deserve and you did not earn. Election takes us to a deeper level of gratitude in what Christ has done. And as we get later into this message, we're going to see the theme of thanksgiving coming up over and over and over. And why? Because of what happened to us in salvation. We have a tragedy on the southern border. We have a lot of people trying to cross from Central America into the U.S., and unfortunately, thousands and thousands and thousands of people are dying. They are. They, they run out of water. There's nobody there. I want to paint a picture of two ways to save these people. One way is to set up a station 
in a strategic location where there's water. Okay? If those people are able to get to the station and get water, they're going to be very grateful. They'll be incredibly grateful they get to the station. However, for many of them, they're not going to have an idea of where the station is. They're not going to have an idea how to get to the station. The kind of love God has shown us is he just didn't set up a water station somewhere for us to come. And if we can get there, we can be saved. He went out. And he went and he looked and he searched. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save what? The lost. One of the main works of the Spirit of God is he seeks and saves people. He goes out in search and rescue. How would we save people on the border? We would have people with packs of water on them, and they would go into every county on that border, and they would seek, and they would search, and they would look for people who were in desperate situation, and they would bring them life-sustaining water. Both people are grateful to have water. The person who knows they were dead, and there was no way they would live, and know that you came with water, there's going to be a different level of gratitude as opposed to just having a, a station set up by the government here. And if you can get there, good luck. And if you can't, that's the way life is. That is the kind of love God has for us. And that's why that little word chosen is really important in this passage. Because if you understand the love of God to that level, it's going to give you a different kind of motivation as you move forward. Second Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. If you want to turn to that. He says, for the love of Christ controls us or compels us. How do, what's the love of Christ? What we just talked about, right? Chosen, set apart, Beloved. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What's the motivation to live for Christ? A bunch of rules and regulations? That's not the motivation. The motivation is Christ's love. His love compels us to change our clothes, to put off the old man and to put on the new man. Why? Because we're going to be punished if we don't? No, because we have been loved like we've never been loved before by God. And with that kind of love, whatever he wants us to do, we want to do it. It comes from a heart of gratitude. It comes from a focus on what Christ has done. We've taken a lot of road trips with our family, and we'll always find something to listen to. And one time we got a hold of Le Miserable, the... Um, Focus on the family version, and we were enjoying listening to that. I never enjoyed as much as everybody else because I'm always driving. So I never quite get the whole, get the whole impact of it. Partly because of that, and partly because I'm 
kind of ADHD a little bit that way. Um, so we have Jean Valjean, who is a bitter prisoner in a camp, a labor camp, and he is released. This is in France. And the, right in the beginning of the, of, the, uh, of the story, he goes to a priest's house late at night, and the priest gives him some food to eat and a place to stay. In the middle of the night, the priest hears commotion going on, and he comes into the room, and Jean Valjean is stealing his silverware. To which, as the priest asks the question, he gets punched in the face and gets knocked out. Early the next morning, the priest opens his door to the police and Jean Valjean, this paroled prisoner. And the officers come in and they say, so this guy right here says that you gave him this silverware. And the priest made this response. Why, uh, yes, yes, I, I did. I'm, I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean, because you forgot the candlesticks. They're worth 2,000 francs. Jean Valjean's face is in shock as the priest and him both know that he stole the silverware. The police release Jean Valjean, and as they're leaving, the priest says to him, now, don't you forget it. Don't you ever forget it. You've promised to become a new man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. And the rest of the story is this man who is transformed by this love for him. He is changed. This is a picture of what's happened to us. We're told in Colossians that we were enemies of Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We weren't seeking God. We could care less about who God was. We were enjoying the pleasures of the world and we were purchased, not with, not with the silver tray and the, and, the, and the candlesticks. We were purchased with the precious blood of Christ. And we're told, don't forget. This is what the Lord's Supper is every time we meet, isn't it? Don't forget my love. Don't forget my love for you. This is not about performance. It's that I love you, and by my love, I'm going to change you into my very image. So the love of Christ gives us the ability to begin to put on the new man. So the mission to become into the very image of Christ, the motivation is what? The love of Christ so much so that he chose us, he set us apart, and he loves us from the very heart. And three is the marks. The marks that he wants us to put on. What are these things he wants to mark us with that will make us different than what we were before? Last week, uh, we talked about putting off is like weeding your garden. 
and you're always weeding the garden, no matter how good it looks, in several days it's not. Well, <clears throat> so one of our brothers came up to me and said, well, brother, he says, there's a way to solve that problem. This isn't the exact quote, so if he's, I know he's listening, so I've got to be careful with this. Um, he said, but if you'd plant something there, instead of just leaving it bare ground, you're not going to have as many weeds come back. I'm thinking, that's going to go in next week's message. We're told to put off, and then we're told to do what? Put on. We're told to weed the bed and then do what? Put ground cover in or whatever else we need so that the weeds don't what? Come back. Paul recognizes as he talks now that even though the old man has died and the new man has come to life, there's still work to be done. It's a work in progress. And he commands us to put off the old man and to put on the new man. And so here are the qualities he asks us to put on. Number one, compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. What does compassion mean? It's pity, it's mercy, it's sympathy. Luke 6.36, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Matthew 9, 35 and 36. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And the Bible says he had compassion. As he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. This is the very Son of God, King of kings and Lord of lords over all the universe sovereign over all his creation, who is going from village to village, teaching and proclaiming the gospel and healing every disease and every affliction. He has compassion on his creation. In the Roman Empire, wasn't a lot of compassion. If they didn't have the right child, they just put it outside to die. If you had an elderly person, they just put them out. They would take care of themselves or they would die. If you were sick, if you were injured, if you were an orphan, if you were a widow, there was no net to c catch anybody. It was a dog-eat-dog -dog world. So we need to put on compassion. That's the first thing. Second character quality we need to put on is kindness. Kindness is goodwill, benevolence, that temper or disposition which delights in contributing to the happiness of others, which is exercised cheerfully in gratifying their wishes, supplying their wants, and alleviating their distresses. Luke 6.35, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. God is kind not just to the good folks. He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. He lets the sun shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. He lets them marry. He lets them hold down a job. He lets them gain wealth. He does all these things. Romans 2.4 Or do you not presume on the riches of his kindness? and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. 
Romans 2 is the Jews looking at the Gentiles who don't know the law and judging them. And he says, listen, because you judge them, you're also judging yourself. Do you not take God's patience and his kindness? Are you taking it for granted? If you judge them and you're living the same way, you're going to be judged as well. God, but notice what God's kindness does. It brings us to what? Repentance. The kindness of the Lord brings people to repentance. The third quality we're supposed to put on is humility. Humility is freedom from pride and arrogance. Humbleness of mind, a modest estimate of one's own worth. In theology, humility consists in lowliness of mind, a deep sense of one's own worthiness in the sight of God, self-abasement, penitence for sin, and the submission to the divine will. Jesus is our picture of humility, isn't he? Who being very God did not consider equality God something to be grasped, but made himself a man and submitted to death, to death on the cross. Humility is not a virtue in the world. It's a virtue in Christ's kingdom. Four is meekness or gentleness. Meekness or gentleness is a softness of temper, mildness, forbearance under injuries and provocation, submission to the will of God without murmuring opposed to pride and arrogance. If you have meekness, you are going to be putting up with stuff. Injuries and insults and things like that and provocations and you're going to be able to respond in a gracious way. Galatians 6 1 warns anyone who's trying to help a brother who's in sin. He says, if anyone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Watching out for yourself that you don't fall into the same sin. Second Timothy 2, 24 through 26, he talks about the Lord's servant. I would say all of us are the Lord's servants. This may be directed more toward Timothy as one of the leaders of the church. But all of us who are Christians are the Lord's servants. Listen to what he says. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That virtue, gentleness, is very important in ministry, in caring for people who are in sin, in caring for the lost world. The Bible says always be prepared to give an answer for everyone who asks you for the hope, but do this with what? Gentleness and respect. When we were in downtown, when I was in Raleigh, we went down to a family, a family gathering. It was families with the same sex, mommies and daddies. And we were down there trying to share the gospel with people. And we had guys who came down, they had this huge banner they put up and they stood by it with this look on their face. And it was pretty much, you're going to burn in hell. That was their message. That was their gospel message. You're going to burn in hell for this. And I remember we were, we had, there was somebody doing some street preaching and there's a guy kind of railing at him. 
And he came over and his buddy was there and I was talking to them a little bit. And we started talking. And I asked him, I asked him about, did he, about Jesus, did he know about Jesus? And we talked about his situation. And he said, you know, he said, this is just the way I am. And I can't change. And, and I said, well, we've all, we're all in sin because of the fall. The fall of Adam caused every one of us to sin in different ways. And, but Christ died that you could be forgiven. And just a, just a gentle approach to him, he listened, he talked, he never said, this is my right to live this way, or I love living this way. He assumed that there was something wrong with him, and he was open to hearing the message of Christ. And at the end, I said, can I pray with you? He said, yeah. So I put my hand on his shoulder, and we prayed right there. I just prayed that God would open his eyes to see Jesus. That is the message. The message is Christ will save you no matter where you're at, no matter what your situation is, whether you're homosexual or you're immoral or whatever the issue is, he can save you. He can turn you. He, you can take off those clothes and put on the new clothes. But the approach needs to be with what? Gentleness. And acknowledging that we're both sinners that need Jesus, right? And the reality is this with our homosexual friends. Take homosexuality off the table. They still have enough sin to send them to hell, correct? And take whatever your big sin is off the table. You still have enough sin to send you to hell, don't you? And so we both are at the foot of the cross for Christ. Meekness. Patience. The suffering of the afflictions, pain, toil, calamity, provocation of other evil with a calm, unruffled temper, endurance without murmuring or fretfulness. William Barclay says, This is the spirit which never loses its patience with its fellow men. Their foolishness and their unteachability never drive it to cynicism or despair. Their insults and their ill treatment never drive it to bitterness or wrath. Wow. That's what we're supposed to put on. All of these are up here on the top shelf, aren't they? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. And then he goes on, forbearance, withholding from beginning an act. So in other words, in design to come down on somebody, you have the ability to hold back and not give them what they might deserve to care for them. Is this not God? Forbearing with, with us and forbearing with this world that he holds back his wrath and gives time for people to repent? Forgiveness? Love? When we look at these qualities, let's compare them to the first list of the put-offs. All the first list is about you and me. Sin is always about you and me, isn't it? Sin is always pride and self-focus. 
this list is all others focused. All others focused. And if you paint this picture and you look at these qualities, these are the very character of Jesus. These are the very character of Jesus that brought you and me to salvation. Compassion. He had compassion on you. Kindness. He brought somebody to you with the gospel. He didn't just squash you like a bug. Humility. He was willing to be the sacrifice for you. Gentleness. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and low in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. He came to his own. His own rejected him. He went to town after town after town proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Patience. Forbearance. Forgiveness. Well, how... How in the world am I ever going to put these on? How how am I ever going to do this? I'm glad you asked. You've experienced them, haven't you? Have you not experienced all of these qualities in Jesus in your own life? That's why we focus on first, uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Because that's what our salvation took. It took these qualities for that to be the case. And so we have the Spirit of God living in us, don't we? Let's look at the means. Now, let me just say one thing. Because we can't leave a verse out when you're doing expository preaching. That's a no-no, okay? I do it all the time, but. Verse 11, notes what it says. <clears throat> Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Wow. What happens when the old man's taken off and the new man's put on? There is level ground at the cross. Barbarians. I mean, these people, you don't want to invite them to dinner. They don't eat with knife and fork. All right? Scythians are just unbelievably abominable in how they live. The Jews could not even stand the Gentiles. If a Gentile butcher fixed some meat, they would never eat it. They would come out of a Gentile town, town and they would shake the dust off their feet. They could not believe the gospel was even going to go to the Gentiles. The Jews never could believe that. That's why you have part of the reason for the whole gift of tongues is to show them, hey, this thing's going beyond Israel. This gospel's going through the whole world. They literally couldn't. When Jesus said, for God so loved the world, that was a shocking statement. It was a shocking statement to the Jews. God only loves us. But with Christ and his salvation, all barriers are removed from all people. 
There was nobody who couldn't come to Jesus. Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. It was all leveled. And why is it leveled? Because Christ is all and is in all. Isn't that great news? It's amazing. So these character qualities produce what? Unity in the church. The church should be a place where no one feels uncomfortable, where everyone feels loved and accepted, and that they experience compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love, and unity. That's the goal, friends. If our church exhibited that on a regular basis to everyone who came in that door, this place would be popping. So what are the means? He goes to verse 15. He tells us forgiveness and love. Love wraps all this up. But this is all the character of Christ. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 5, be imitators of Christ. How do you become an imitator of Christ? First of all, we have the peace of Christ, verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. First off, the peace of Christ comes from the gospel. The peace of Christ comes from the fact that I know I don't have to perform to be loved by God. And I'm going to keep hammering on that because all of us are naturally hardwired for works righteousness. Christ died for you and brought you to himself without your performance. And he's promised to continue the relationship irregardless of how good you perform. And so this peace that we know that he loves us no matter what is critical to be able to put off and put on. When you and I shift to a performance mindset and we have to do this and this and this and this for God to love me or I didn't have my quiet time today so God's going to do something to me or I'm asking for an answer to prayer but God's not going to give it because I didn't do X, Y, or Z or wow, I just had a wreck. That means I did X, Y, or Z wrong over here. That's why I had a wreck. When we continue to operate off of a performance mindset, there is no peace. Jesus has made peace with man. He's made peace with you and I by Jesus. Jesus was enough. for you to have peace with God. His sacrifice was enough. Your performance is not going to add anything to your salvation. And if you do it with the wrong motive, it's ugly. So where do we get the peace? We look at verses one through four. Raised with Christ, Seated with Christ. We have died with Christ. 
We're in union with Christ. Our old man has died. Our new, we have a new man, and we're in the process of that being changed day by day as we walk with him. The secure net of God's peace underneath us. We're not going to go out and sin just because God's going to forgive us. But when we know we're loved like that, we are going to desire to put everything off that offends him and put everything on that looks like him. If you love your wife, men, as hard as this might be, you may have to let go of some of your duds. But you'll dress the way she wants you to dress. Why? Because she loves you and you want to please her. And she did not shed her blood for you. Christ did. You were redeemed from this empty way of life by the blood of Christ. So it's the peace of Christ. And then he says next, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with gratefulness in your hearts to God. How do we put all this on? We immerse ourselves in the word of God. He says, richly dwell in you. The Bible says, how does a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word, Psalm 119, 9 and 11. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Part of the reason that we're not making as much progress in our Christian life is because we don't fully understand the gospel. And I'm talking to myself. We have a rudimentary understanding that he forgave us of our sins. A lot of us believe now we're to work our own salvation out and really get after it. And we don't understand what he has for us down the road. We don't understand how that he wants to use that to cause us to become holy. And that's the whole thrust of this whole passage in chapter 3 is focus on Christ and who he is. And, and put off this and put this on. And all this right here at the end is all in the context of the church. He's talking about one another's as we go through this. Teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. Let Christ rule in your hearts since you are members of one body. Within the, how are we going to practice these things? We've got several contexts, don't we? One is the church. To show compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness in the church. And in our what? Homes. What would happen in our homes if this is who we are? What would happen to our witness in the lost world if we were compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient? Forbearing, forgiving, loving. Notice in this passage in 16, we are to be speaking the truth. We're to be teaching each other the truth of God's word, reminding each other of the gospel, reminding each other that we're loved. That is one thing I want to constantly do for you and for me is to remind us how much we're loved by God, how much we're loved by Christ. 
That is what compels us to change, is that we're loved by him. Deeper than we can even imagine. And then, not only teaching, but admonishing. Being able to correct. Being able to say, oh, that's not right, brother. This is the truth you want to hold on to right here. Teaching, putting these truths in place, taking out the false ideas. Because false ideas always produce what? Sin, don't they? Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. How are we to be sanctified? How are we to become like Jesus? By the word of God. As we partake of God's word, hearing it, reading it, thinking about it, meditating on it, digesting it, applying it, then the gradual work of sanctification occurs. That is why the renewing that takes place is with true knowledge according to the image of the one who creates us. Christians aren't sinless. But as we understand more of the gospel and the love that Christ has for us, the less we're going to sin. The less we're going to sin. He talks here about singing, singing the truth in song, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, worship, worship and, and all, all, all avenues because of what he's done for us. And then finally, living the truth. Living the truth. He says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do we live the truth out to the lost world? When I played with Athletes in Action, we traveled to China. We played the Chinese national team in three games in China, in Beijing, in Shanghai, and one other place, I don't remember the name. And we had played this team seven times in Canada when they came to visit us. And these were hard-fought games. They're playing before several hundred million people on TV watching the game. They want to win. And we're playing, and we want to win because we're going to tell everybody about Jesus, right? We're going to be a testimony about who Jesus is. That's what we're going to do. And so we're playing this game. I think it was in Beijing. And this one guy just kept, just kept, I mean, when the ball went up on the rim and I was blocking out, I was just getting hammered on the back. This guy was just constantly just jumping all over me. My sinful side rose up. And he came in one time and I went like this. And when I did, I caught him right in the face. And he's just looking at me in shock and going like this and, and I'm feeling, I go from feeling, well, I'll talk about that in a minute. So we finished the game. We finished the game, right? He comes up to me. I'm like, okay, this is not going to be good. And he says, do you, do you have a Bible? Can I go from 6'9 to 1'9 as I give him a Bible? We're called to live it, aren't we? How do we live it? Not in the power of our flesh. What I did there was in the power of the flesh. It was, in, it was in anger. It was in frustration. And yet, despite that, God used, God used us being with him to get a Bible. But we're called to live differently, aren't we? 
We're called to put off anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. We're called to put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. That's what he's called us to do. Why? For the glory of God. And finally, if you'll notice sprinkled through here on 15, 16, and 17, he says, and be thankful. 16, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And 17, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What are we thankful for? May I share with you? It's the gospel. So we need the peace of Christ, we need the word of Christ, and we need to constantly look at the gospel and what Christ has done for us that we'll have thankful hearts. A lot of us fall into sin and stay in sin because we're ungrateful. We don't think about what God's done for us, we lose sight of what he's done for us, we become self-focused and we fall into what? Sin. That's the pattern. I feel really, I'm just, this is not fair. He's not treating me right. And boom, we fall into sin. A thankful heart helps us put off the old man and put on the new. Brothers and sisters, we've been purchased by something more than silver and gold. We've been purchased with the precious blood of Christ. He loves you and me more than we can comprehend. And that love, if you understand it, if you understand it, will give you all that you need by the power of the Spirit to put off the old man and to put on the garments of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Lord, I pray you'd help us to understand the power of the gospel. Not only to forgive us, but to change us into the image of Jesus. And Father, that we would look to you and the gospel and the fact that we're chosen, holy, and beloved. And that we don't need to live the way we're living anymore. We have an imperishable seed in us that is going to continue to grow and change and make us more into the image of Christ. Father, may we fully put off the old man and put on the new. If we don't know how to do that, Lord, help us to come and ask questions and get help. The joy of holiness, the joy of Christ's righteousness, it is ours to have. Christ paid for it. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, is not trusting in Jesus alone for their salvation, that they would see that his burden is light, his yoke is easy, 
He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Oh, Father, help them come. Help them lay their sin at the feet of Jesus. Change them into your, into your child and begin the glorious process of making them like Jesus. Father, help us to not just be hearers of the word. Help us to take what we've heard and apply it for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.